Today's podcast is sponsored by Lara Bar, the original fruit and nut bar brand. Founder Lara American believes that a healthy mind and body begins from within. That's why she created a range of indulgent and delicious bars made from six real ingredients as close to their natural state as possible for more mindful snacking. Lara Bar gives you a tasty treat made of simple, minimally processed, vegan and gluten-free ingredients without added sugar and flavors. Simple, real, delicious. Head over to larabar.co.uk to see all the flavors on offer. Today I'm joined by Marissa Peer. Named Britain's best therapist by Men's Health magazine, Marissa has spent over three decades treating a client list that includes international superstars, CEOs, royalty, and Olympic athletes. In addition to being a national magazine columnist, she also has appeared on countless major media outlets in the US, Scandinavia, Japan, Africa, and throughout Europe. Best-selling author of five books, Marissa's USP is that she teaches simple steps that produce dramatic and life-changing results. When she reveals her fundamental rule that all our emotional and personal problems come from us believing that we're not enough and explains how to overcome it, the results are tremendous and dramatic and Marissa is joining me via Zoom today. Welcome, Marissa. What a delight to be able to speak with you today and share our chat with our listeners. Uh, can you let us all know where you're joining me from today? We're actually, we live in London, but we're in, we also live in LA. So right now we're in LA and Venice on the canals and it's beautiful here. Oh, how exquisite. It's the right time of year to, to be in LA, especially if you're divided between London and LA um, at the moment. How have you been finding 2020? How has the global pandemic been for you so far in your work? I know that we're, we're now firmly in October, but how have you been finding it, Marissa? Do you know, it was okay for us. We, wouldn't, we took the last flight out of London to LA in March before they shut the borders. It was all very, very surreal. But once we got to our house, it was like, and I mean, I'm very lucky because I have a film studio in my house. We get up every day, we'd work, we do some filming for YouTube. I'd take out my paddleboard and go down the canals, come home, have dinner, go to bed. It didn't actually feel that different. I really missed you know, friends coming over. And so that was hard. And um, business-wise, it was interesting because I was working with a lot of people on Zoom and Skype who were obviously traumatized. Yeah. Uh, we had to make all of our classrooms virtual. That didn't seem to affect us. And then we went back to London in June just as everything opened. So we mm. were very lucky. But our biggest problem is we actually couldn't get back into America. That was um, oh. really, after three months in London, even though we have visas and we yeah. were have a business and we couldn't get back and eventually we had to go to Turkey just to get back into America but that actually ended up being amazing we had a wonderful time so sometimes things that are not that are put in your way actually we ended up having such a great time we decided the day before we were going if the government said oh you can come back we still would have gone so it was great and now we're in LA but we have the same problem we're coming to London in October hmm. to one of my RTT schools two of them wow. and we don't know get back into America so it's a challenge but you know these things are happening considering what everyone else is going through we we are very fortunate and very privileged and oh, really have nothing to complain about of all of the places to be in the world I think it's quite a special place to be so I hope that um, after your trip back to London uh, this month that you manage to get back in easily and be there especially for the winter months here um, you mentioned your your RTT training uh, that's something I actually wanted to talk about today and to share with our listeners what was it that made you find 
um, and discover this this RTT technique. That's kind of your USP. Would it be fair to say that? Yes, and I think what made me discover it was my own clients. I have to give them all the credit. I think when you're a therapist, mm. no matter how brilliant your teaching is, and I had a wonderful teacher called Gil Boyne, mm-hmm. but no matter how amazing he was, I discovered very quickly that my best teachers were my, my own clients, and they taught me everything. So mm-hmm. I was always a very curious therapist. I, I was always a person who believed in breaking rules, and especially if they didn't make sense to me. And so I immediately began working with clients. One of the things I was taught as a therapist is you must never judge your client. If a client comes in and says, my husband hits me, you must never go, because you've judged them. And I remember thinking that's just so ridiculous. If a client came in to see me and said, my husband hits me, I would tell, I would have talked to them. And in fact, lo and behold, not long after I graduated, I had this sweet little lady of 80 who told me their husband used to hit her on a regular basis. And I said, but that's not love. Mm. And I said, no, he's not a good husband. Mm. He's a good provider. There's a huge difference. Someone that hits you cannot be called a good husband. Mm. And lo and behold, I didn't tell her to leave him. That wasn't my job. But I pointed out that she was deluding herself by constantly describing him as a good, wonderful husband when he was simply a good, wonderful provider. Mm. I was thrilled when her son, who tended to be said, she's left him and she's never been happier. Oh, wow. Because at 80? At 80. And, oh, and she had another seven years of happiness without being regularly smacked around the head. That must have been so, quite, quite a uh, transformation for her in her lifestyle, especially if she'd been in quite a long marriage with that being quite quite a feature or a factor of it. That's what our TT does. It, so... It, it gives people a transformation. So being a therapist, I, I, you asked me the first question about my clients, how I developed RTT. I looked at yeah. my clients yeah. and I worked out very quickly, what do clients want? Well, what clients want is very simple. They want to be free of pain. It could be physical pain. It could be emotional pain. They want to be over pain. And I do understand people who say, you know, talk therapy, is better because it allows you to build a relationship with a therapist over time so you can reveal yourself. But I thought, but you know what, if I have pain in my tooth or broke my leg, I don't need to develop any kind of relationship with my dentist or indeed the doctor in ER. I just need to be fixed. And so I decided to create a different type of therapy that was rapid. And, And many conventional therapists will say to me, you know, the words rapid and therapy don't belong together. I believe they do. I believe that when someone is in any kind of pain, they want to be over the pain. And I also think we live in such a fast world that now people just I think the idea of going to a therapist every Wednesday for four years is is losing its luster because we don't have time for that anymore. And I discovered I could get amazing results in between one and three sessions by dealing with what I call what lies beneath. So if a client came to me with chronic depression or anxiety or lack of confidence or even a stutter, I would always look for what caused that and treat that. And... And then over time, my clients would come back and say, you know, when you did that, that changed my life. When you made me say that or express that, that was a game changer. Mm -hmm. And so I gradually collected all the feedback and put it into a technique that I called RTT. Yeah. And and then I began to teach it because people would write to me and say, hey, I just want to see you, but I'm in Mexico or Dubai or Leeds. And so... 
We started training people only in December of 2015, and we've now trained 6,000 therapists all over the world, and they too are getting extraordinary results. I mean, every what I used to love about being a therapist is that every day I'd wake up to a letter, a card, and they going, hey, Marissa, you, you changed my life. Mm. This is a baby I thought I'd never have, or the body I thought I'd never have. But now I get letters from the people I trained saying, hey, look at the letter I just got from my client. And it's just the most wonderful feeling in the world. No, of course. What I love about when I was, especially when I was researching RTT, so rapid transformational therapy, that's correct. Um, It's a mixture of all of these elements of neuroplasticity, uh, CBT, NLP, um, and a lot of our listeners will know about NLP because we've done some great work recently with um, Richard Bandler. So what are the aspects of all of these core uh, knowledge bases that you brought together to create RTT? So RTT is a hybrid therapy, and it does contain elements of NLP, CBT, psychotherapy it even contains elements of shamanism because all the inner child work you probably know is based on shamanism which um can be actually very useful but along with all of the techniques that i've put in there some ericksonian work are my own techniques so it's a combination it's a combination of existing therapies that work Mm, mm, mm. but it's also uh at least 60% of it are my own techniques that I created that that I found incredibly uh, useful. And so what, what RTT is like, it's like a recipe. People say to me, you're like the Jamie Oliver of therapy. You know, if you follow Jamie Oliver's recipe, you'd probably produce something quite similar to what Jamie could produce. Maybe not quite as good, maybe just as good. And so I developed a formula that I wanted to teach because when people said, initially can you teach your method I was like oh no no (laughs) I was very possessive in my method because it was mine it took me 30 years to put together right that was one of the questions I had for you actually I was quite proud of it but I was certainly possessive of it and a lot of people would ask me to go and teach my method at boot camps or at spas and and they'd offer me a lot of money it's like oh no because if I teach you my method you can now take my method but then again, one of my dear friends was Wayne Dyer, and he said something very true. He said, don't die with your music still inside you. And I realized, you know, this is my legacy, but really, of course I should share it. Yeah. And so I decided if I was going to teach it, I had to teach it in a way that people could do it. Because we look at people like Tony Robbins and go, well, Tony Robbins is amazing, but I couldn't do that. We look at certain people and go, gosh, they're so good, but I couldn't do that. And so RTT is not what I do. It's what the people I've trained do. Right. And for them to do it really, really well, we, we teach a formula. And the formula is very simple. You, you first of all become an investigator and you investigate like a detective. A detective will look at a scene, gather information and work out what's mm. happened here. Mm. And a, a great RTT therapist is just the same. You, We call it being a good detective, looking for what has gone on. So when people say, you know, I'm, I've never been able to leave food or I've always bitten my nails already, we know that's not true. First of all, you didn't have any teeth until you were 18 months. You couldn't possibly bite your nails. Right, right. They find it very easy to leave food. I can't bear to be looked at. 
I hate being the focus of attention. No newborn baby says, don't look at me. In fact, they expect to be looked at. They like it. So that's always a, what I call an ears prick up moment. We look at, we understand that all of our fears, you're only born with two fears, and that's the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. There are no other fears. A baby will put a cockroach in its mouth, will touch a snake, will put their hand in a fire. They're not scared of flights or people. They don't have any fears or phobias. So knowing that we've acquired them is actually great news because it means we can be free of them. So first you become a detective right. and you find when did this happen. Then you become like a dentist and extract all that toxic material. And then you become a coder and you start to code in, wire in and fire in new beliefs using, of course, neuroplasticity, mm. getting the person to think a different thought, to believe a different belief, which, of course, is life-changing. And, and that last part, the coding, is always recorded because the mind learns by repetition. Mm -hmm. And the client plays that recording and almost always they report life-changing results. Mm. Mm. One of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Maudsley that said, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will cause other organs to weep. And wow. I found that quote so profound. Um, and it's the basis of my work that when people don't know what they feel and can't express what they feel, mm. the body will take on that for them. And, uh, and often clients come in and they, they can't express anger, they can't express hurt, and the body is expressing it for them. But interesting because both quotes and songs come up very often in our teaching. Right. And I love that. What sort of songs? So often when I'm working with a client, we, we something I talk about a lot is you need to sing a different song. So we have a little song we sing, I'll die if you leave me, I can't live without you, my life is empty without you. I'm, I'm it sounds, sounds like a great 80s or 90s power ballad. Rissa, these oh, there's, there's plenty of ones from, the, from now. And we change that to, you know, of course, if you imagine what song you're going to sing, I can't live if living is that, or I will survive, because that I will survive is such a great message. But um so often clients are singing a song they don't understand. Mm. I, I can't make it without you. My life is empty. I can't go on. When they should be singing, this girl is on fire. I am titanium. I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. But sometimes when I'm working with a client, especially on stage, we often look at songs. So they'll have a, a belief. There's no love, you know. I'm 50 years old, I'm more likely to be abducted by a Martian or run over by a bus than find love at my age. And I say, you know, that just isn't true. Mm. And then we might use that song from The Lion King or the song from Wet, 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 Love is All Around or yeah. Can You Love Tonight? Or they might have a different belief, which is I, I, I'm not confident, I just can't do it. Mm. And and some, there's a great song I love called If You Gotta Leave, You Gotta Go Now. And sometimes when we're getting clients' symptoms to go away, mm. I often invite them to put that song on their ringtone. Mm. And I find song lyrics very good for clients because it's a little mantra. You know, we all talk about mantras and affirmations. But if you get them to put on their ringtone a certain song, Mm. like the song from Frozen, Let It Go, Let It Go. They they find that very useful because I find many clients do the opposite of letting go. They hold on. My dad didn't love me. 
so I can't be lovable. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, we could never leave food. We didn't have much money, and now I never can leave food. When I was at school, I was told I was stupid, and so that's why I can't have my own startup company. They're holding on to a belief that is outdated, and and using let it go is. You know, I'll give you a very simple example because they're always so easy. I worked with a man who was morbidly obese and very likely to die because he was so overweight and ate so much. And he, his case wasn't that unusual. He was a premature baby taken home at like something like three pounds. And the mother had a strict, you know, strict thing. She you must feed this baby every two hours. He must gain weight. If he vomits, feed him again immediately or he'll have to go back into the incubator. Of course, Every time he brought up food, the mother would cry hysterically. His whole early months were about feeding, weighing, feeding, weighing, and the stress and the tension in that house. And the minute he began to gain weight, they go, oh, he's such a good baby. And they called him their little jumbo jet because he got bigger and bigger. Now, of course, this poor man is 400 pounds because of his programming. I have to eat to make people happy. I might die if I don't eat, which is completely outdated. And logically, he knew that. But the emotional mind, the feeling mind, which will always overrule the logical mind, still acted on that belief, I'll die if I don't eat. Mm. And I said, but you know, the truth is you'll die if you continue eating like that. And so for him, that little song, Let It Go, Let It Go, was very useful. And we have a lot of little, what I call interruptions that we use in our TT, like having the client go, well, that's not me because, and they have to say in hypnosis why it isn't them. Mm. and why they know it isn't them. And all the time you're getting the patterns of the mind to change. Because so many people that come into my office are wonderful adults, but they're not really, they're, they're a broken child. You only have to look at Marilyn Monroe or Princess, or indeed Michael Jackson to see, oh, that's not an adult at all, that's a child. And when a child's needs aren't met, they present as adults with the belief that, well, my need's never going to be met. I'm not lovable. I'm not interesting. I'm not worthy. Even though it's not true, they still feel it. It's it's wonderful that you've shared that because one of my questions was that you started off as, as a nutritionist and then uh, and a child psychologist. And I was actually going to ask if you still work with children, but I guess to some extent, even with the adults that you're working with, you are working with the with, uh, with children to some extent, that with the inner child that we all have. Yeah, um, a lot of people that we see in the adult world. You see, if you're a little child, you have very simple needs. They're very simple. I need to feel safe. Mm. I need to feel significant. I need to feel I matter. I need to feel loved. That's really it. Yeah. And when those needs aren't met, those children become adults who still have this belief, I'm not loved, I'm not safe, I don't matter, I'm not significant. Mm-hmm. And it's very important because they then look for someone else. Can you make me feel good enough? Can you make me feel I matter? And they may find that person, but when that person leaves or dies or something happens, they're right back to, oh, I still have this unmet need. And what RTT does very well is it gives you that it allows you to meet that need for significance to be lovable, which is why I founded the I'm Enough movement because it's so important for people to believe they're enough. And I actually do work with a lot of children, children with fears and phobias. And we recently created an anti-bullying program that's in schools. And then we created a program called Magical Minds to help children build their own immunity and not live in fear of coronavirus. So 
I love working with children. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that leads us a little bit onto your workshop, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, you know, talking about children, many people believe that we are born with um, a connection to our own truth, to our our infinity, our that self-confidence, or, you know, an ability to know who we really are. Exactly how you gave some examples of children and and the fears that we're born with and, and that's it. There's not really any limitations beyond that. Uh, but we lose that as we age. Why do you think we actually pick up detrimental thought patterns and emotional behaviours? Is it entirely because of the conditioning around us? Of course it is. And that's why we're all so different. So imagine you're a little kid and you're born and see when you're in the womb, it's like being in Hawaii. It's always 75 degrees you have 24 hour room service and you're connected to a person so there are a tiny amount of exceptions of babies who feel not wanted but on the whole a baby in the womb thinks well I matter when a baby is born it doesn't stop to think well shall I cry for attention my mum's exhausted she's been up all night shall I throw up this avocado that she went to Whole Foods and spent a lot of money on they don't think like that they just have a belief I'm here and you're going to meet all my needs. Mm. And if you do meet those children's needs, they tend to grow up into very evolved adults. But we know that most people, even with the best of intentions, don't meet their children's needs. They say things like, well, your brother could speak when he was four. Mm. Your sister doesn't drop food all over the table. Look at your cousin. She's a straight A student. Why can't you be like that? And some parents say things very interesting to their kids. Um, I love you because you're smart. I love you because you're so pretty. I love you because you're so good. Of course the child were here. Oh, and if I wasn't, you wouldn't. Right. It's very, very hard as a parent to get it right. And even if you get it right, you then send your children to school or with babysitters who can also do a lot of damage. I mean, my little girl came home from school and they said, Mommy, what's a waste of space? And I began to explain it. And I said, well, where did you hear that? She said, my teacher told me I was a waste of space. We have a guillotine in our school, new thing. And I wanted to cut a circle with it. And she said, oh, you're such a waste of space. And she was five. And it really annoyed me that this teacher would just, this is in a private school that I'm paying for. Right. My child in front of all the other children. Mm. And some teachers do that. Mm. Some teachers, you know, it, we don't mean to be mean to kids, but we, we've, we've put them into a world that is, you know, modern life is not, I don't think it's that good for humans. I see so many children now, even at 11, you know, I speak to someone recently at 11 years old, they know all about a thigh gap. They know about oh. all the things that they shouldn't know about. They know about, is that designer? Am I trainees Nike? Are they from Tesco? In which case they don't count. Yes. It's quite a vicious cycle because if you're saying that these are patterns that we pick up in childhood ourselves from from parents or from individuals who then haven't haven't had that transformation or have fully formed their personalities, their attachments, their coping mechanisms, their um their ability to express love and and all of these things from people before them who didn't know how and it's just this vicious cycle that continues. So um in a sense, it's, you know, chicken or the egg. Do we, do we focus on impacting the lives of the children so that it doesn't make it, to, so that they don't then pick up those habits 
and pass them on to their children or do we work on on the adults and hope that that then trickles down through into what you have to work on the children you know you if you if we could you know for instance i've i've spent a lot of time with tribes and What's interesting in tribes is everybody looks the same, sort of. They know where they come from and they don't have this comparing. Because we live in a multicultural society, we compare ourselves. I don't look like you. You don't look like me. And children start comparing themselves very early. Uh, I don't look like that. I don't have that. I can't do that. And schools, even the ones that say, you know, we nurture the individual, I find most of them really don't. They want all the children to be academically the same. They want them to dress the same, hence having uniforms. Mm. And it's the comparing yourself to someone else that does the most damage. I mean, that, that's what happens with bullies. Bullies never wake up and go, hey, my life is so great. Who can I diminish today? A bully by nature doesn't feel good enough mm. and they need to make other people feel not good enough so they have equality. Very much the same with trolling. And one of the reasons I created I Am Enough is to make people know that you cannot compare yourself to anyone ever. Of course, we all do. You have to know that you are enough just the way you are. You're not your weight or your shape or your size or your, the numbers on your birth certificate or even in your bank account. You have to believe that you are enough just the way you are. When you can do that, your life will change dramatically. If you don't mind me saying, I think um, the list of books that you'd written um, previously, I think they're quite reflective of the world in which women were trying to succeed for many years, quite a patriarchal um, society. And I think things are definitely changing now, but um, books such as You Can Be Thin, um, You Can Be Younger, um, and then now the overarching message, which is You Are Enough, which is super necessary in the world that we're in now. Um, but women were constantly being able to you know, they were constantly made to feel that, that they weren't enough. Particularly from magazines. I think you'll find in any country where, for instance, in Turkish villages in, in Fiji, before they had television, they just didn't have a, a glut of eating disorders. Whenever you put television and media into places that haven't had it previously, you'll find that girls especially start to focus on what they weigh, on what they look like, and they start to compare themselves. And it's a great shame, which is why I'm enough was so important to make people feel they're enough. I, people think my books, You Can Be Younger and You Can Be Thin, are really about women having to believe they're younger and thinner. But actually, the highest weight loss group I'm working with are actually men, not women. And I didn't even like the word thin. I still don't like it to this day. But of course, it's a bit like my book, Trying to Get Pregnant and Succeeding. I don't even like the word trying. I think trying itself is trying. But, you know, if you in this world, you have to use titles that people search for. Right. And the thin book was really all about the psychology of overeating. So many people overeat because they're unhappy. Mm. And it was really about how to break that. And younger, the younger book was actually about how to reverse the aging of your mind. The, the mind doesn't age like the body ages. Mm. It was really about how you can keep a young mind and, yeah. and how you can keep the neurons of your brain firing because the brain has what is quite brutal in what I call use it or lose it. Yes. And if you use neurobics, then your brain will stay young for a long, long, long time. Yeah, yeah. I understand people will pick that up. 
Yeah, it, it, society has done a lot of damage to women, especially in judging oh, sure. what they look like. You're judged. You know, when I go on the radio, people say, oh, I, you, what you said was great. When I go on to go, they go, I loved your top. Or, or, you know, where did you get that glittery eyeliner from? Yeah. yeah. Um, because people focus on what you look like. And, of course, for women, it's, it's, it's really hard because you've got to be thin and perfect. And, and social media has made that a million times worse. We look at people now who've had a baby and are out in their leather jeans and their <laughs> tight little We think, well, I don't look like that. <laughs> we look at someone like Kim Kardashian and think, wow, she looks amazing. She's got four kids. But mm. those people have got an army of staff behind them. They have someone juicing for them. They don't have to do anything except turn up and maybe go to the gym. Yeah. And I think it's very hard for women because it's always been hard, but gosh, it's getting harder. And social media has made it a million times worse because every day you are exposed at least 300 times to fake images of perfection. Mm. Images of fake perfection that make you go back to as if you start to compare yourself. Oh, I don't look like that. It's why we now have a glut of people having surgery to look the way they think we should look. When Actually, you're not supposed to look like that. Your breasts are not supposed to be up on your clavicles looking like two grapefruits. That's not real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's interesting to see it from that perspective because, you know, I would have said that previously we were in a world that was constantly, you know, changing the goalposts. It was moving the goalposts, changing the game of what it meant to be successful or happy, you know, particularly from the perspective of, of women. Um and some might say that now, even though this message is getting louder and you're saying that it's becoming harder, that message of um, the more natural side or that more connected, or if we talk about body positivity or even body neutrality, is also getting amplified and having having more, more airtime, let's say. So when did you realize that you are enough was actually the main message that needed to come through? In the early, late 90s, I guess, when I was specializing in eating disorders, because when mm -hmm. I became a therapist and I was working for Jane Fonda, my speciality was women with bulimia, anorexia, and body dysmorphia, and men too. Yeah. And they would all say the same thing. Well, I'm not enough, so I need more. And of course, then I started to work with addicts who'd always say the same thing. Well, I'm not enough, and I need more. I need more alcohol, more drugs, more cakes, more praise, more stuff. So from working with kleptomaniacs to hoarders to bulimics to alcoholics to people who were very needy, I realized, gosh, they all say the same thing. I'm not enough, so I need more praise, more, more something. And then I started to work with billionaires and millionaires who would say the same. It's like, oh, I thought this was a problem of lack. But here are these people living in a marina with a massive yacht, five homes all over the world, and they too have eating disorders and alcoholism mm. because they too have this inner belief, I'm not enough, and if I'm not enough, I need more. And, you know, we look at people like George Michael and that wonderful chef, as Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and go, why, why would these people kill themselves? Well, they would kill themselves because they don't think they're enough. And we have this belief, if I'm not enough, I'll become rich and famous, then I'll be enough. And then you go, well, that didn't work for Whitney Houston. It didn't work for Amy Winehouse because 
you can't fix your not enoughness with stuff. You can't Netflix it. You can't eBay it. You can't shop it, eat it, buy it. Mm. There's no, The only thing you can do to cure your not enoughness is to reverse it and to keep saying, I am enough without ever, not because you've got thin thighs, you're enough, whatever kind of thighs you have. You know, it, it, in a world where you're supposed to have thin thighs and big hair, it's okay to have thin hair and big thighs. You're still enough. And yeah. so I found that with my clients, making them say I'm enough, they go, oh my God, I can't believe those words have changed my life. Just saying it, writing it, reading it, stating it is a game changer. Mm -hmm. Because all of my clients would feed back, wow, those were the words that got me out of an abusive marriage. Those are the words that got me to lose a ton of weight. In fact, somebody wrote to me and said, those three words made me leave an abusive relationship, get a job, take out an injunction against my partner and keep my kids away. And it was just those words. Mm -hmm. So I loved that. And then I began to work on it, started to make little bracelets like the ones I wear, started to make little transferable tattoos, called it the title of my book, uh, trademarked it so that I actually own it now, I'm enough, which is great. Um, we don't mind if you Yeah, oh yeah, we totally own I Am Enough all over the world. <laughs> we don't mind if people put baseball, and we don't stop people, but if someone else, we just had that recently, someone else tried to have a company called I'm Enough, and it's like, actually, sorry, but that's my life's work, and you can't have it. But you can, of course, you can print a T-shirt and, and a pen. We're not possessive. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase. Yeah. It's a bit like Starbucks, you know, or I'm trying to think of another word that you could say. Like Tony Robbins' phrase is live with passion. Um, we, it, it's nice that we own I'm Enough because we give it to schools. We have a program called I'm Enough and we constantly give that away all the time. Quite Again, interesting that, you, that um, we live in a world where phrases like that, which would have, of course, existed before, um, can be trademarked. I think that's... Yeah, you can I mean, you, unfortunately, you live in a world where if you create something that's your life work, you sort of have to trademark it. Yeah. Yeah. Because other people will then start to say, well, uh, that's me or that's mine. So yeah. it's, it's a little bit of a shame. Actually, the same thing with our TT, you know, we had to trademark that so that all the people we train can call themselves our TT therapists, but we mm -hmm. can't let someone who lives in, Australia, let's say, I don't know, lives in L London and isn't to call themselves an RTT therapist. So it's a great shame that you have to do that. But when you're good at something, you always get someone else coming along and saying, actually, yeah, I, I, I'll take that as well. And I'll take the brand and I'll take the name. Yeah, I do get it with RTT because, um, you know, I've come across someone else who, who's mentioned to me in the past, oh, I've, I've just got my uh, rapid transformational therapy session with my therapist. And I've known, because I've known about your work for a very long time, I've known that that's originally your technique, even if that person doesn't know, but I've known inside, you know, and they've mentioned rapid transformational therapy. I know that RTT is is something that that uh, you created. So I do get it from, from that perspective. Um, You've shared very beautifully in the past and quite quite openly, quite candidly about overcoming um, your own eating disorders and helping those around you. Would you say that's the biggest thing that you you personally 
um, overcame, which led you to your work? I would say the biggest thing I overcame was feeling insecure and feeling unworthy, which is incredibly common. You know, mm. my childhood wasn't horrible at any stretch of the imagination. Many of my clients show me a childhood that really is horrific. Mine was actually all right, except that I grew up feeling that I wasn't good enough. I grew up feeling a bit stupid, mm-hmm. quite unattractive, a bit of a freak. My father was my own head teacher and he was a lovely man, but that's never good for a kid because you feel different. And mm-hmm. what we, when we talk again about children comparing themselves, when we're born on the planet, we have two needs. I must find connection and avoid rejection. And how we find connection and avoid rejection is by being the same. Well, that's why in tries, oh, I look like you, you look like me, I belong. Um, It's now becoming harder and harder for people to find connection and avoid rejection, especially since so many of us are now making Facebook friends, our friends, and our whole life is on a screen. And that's fake connection. And in the fake connection, you can also find a lot of rejection on screen that that you can go on a site where they rate you and go, oh no, we we think um, online dating is great, but there's a lot of rejection. Just swipe, yeah. swipe, and then you're gone. Yeah, you they don't they don't ju- they judge you unfavorably. They don't even know you. And so for me, I never felt connected, and I was very easily rejected. And of course, what happens with everyone that starts off like that is that you make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. You start to reject yourself. Mm-hmm. And when I was thrown out of college, that was actually one of the best things that ever happened. I ended up going to LA, working for Jane Fonda. Right. looking at the psychology of overeating. And then I realized it was all about, oh, people try to be thinner, to connect, to fit into this fake image that the media has given them. Mm-hmm. And so, the, I mean, I, I did a lot of things. I Yeah, I had an eating disorder. I was told I could never have a baby. I had two life-threatening illnesses, like one after the other. And I would say that all of those things combined were I was able to overcome them only because I knew that the, the biggest thing is how is the words you use to describe yourself. It isn't about what the people, it's what you tell you. So I knew I didn't have to find someone else to go, hey, you're good enough. I had to do it. I didn't need to listen to a doctor saying you'll never have a baby. I had to say I will. When a doctor said to me, you know, you have this incurable illness and it's going to come back, I decided I'm not going to let that in. And so my message really to everyone is the most important words you'll ever hear in your entire life are the words you say to yourself. And the most important opinion is your opinion. Some of the smartest people that we look up to, the Oprah Winfrey, Tony Robbins, they didn't come from wealth. They didn't go to university. So it's, it's, you know, we just don't give people enough power to recognize it's what you say to you that will set you up for success or indeed failure. That what the words you use, the language you use, it, your words shape your reality. If you don't like your reality, change the way you talk to yourself and about yourself because that is a game changer. Marissa, how do you create that? Um that tangible experience because it's one thing to change the narrative to change the way that we speak to ourselves to change the words um but how 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 would someone create that shift in you know from words to a belief because even if you're saying it there may be some underlying belief that that uh that overrides the words 
the mind learns by repetition. And of course, when you start to go, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, your mind goes, no, you're not. Of course you're not. You live in an apartment. You rent a room in someone's house. You haven't even got your own home. You haven't got a car. Buy your clothes in Primark. So clearly you're not enough. But then you have to understand the objector is you. Mm. So every time you say I'm enough and you hear a little voice going, that's not true. If you're enough, how come you're still single? You go, yeah, I am still single. And you know what? If I keep saying I'm enough every day, I won't be single for long. Yeah, I'm 20 pounds every day. I keep saying I'm enough and maybe I'll stop overeating. And what happens is instead of trying to shut down the objections, add them in, yeah, I shop in Primark difference does that make? I am enough. And eventually your mind goes, you know what? First of all, you run out of objections. And secondly, because you say it every day, it becomes true. It becomes, as you said, neuroplasticity. What you say becomes real. The strongest force in every human being in the world is that we act, we must act in a way that matches how we identify ourselves. When you go, I'm a loser. I don't know what full is. Everything I do goes wrong. That's your blueprint. Mm. If we all could only know that the words we speak and the thoughts we think every minute are a blueprint that our mind and body must work to make real, then we think, well, why don't I change the blueprint? You know, for instance, if you say every day I've got a memory like a sieve, I'd lose my eyes if they weren't screwed in. You'll make that real. If you say, I have a phenomenal, incredible memory, you'll make that real. And actually, one, one, of the reason, one of the ways I know that to be true is that I had a client who was sectioned for a while and was a very unhappy person, not easy by any stretch of the imagination. And when I spoke to her, she'd say this, I can't cope. My mum couldn't cope. My mum couldn't cope with a packet of crisps being open. My mum was light sensitive, noise sensitive. We never went to the same, never went to a supermarket because she couldn't cope. And then as this client said, I can't cope. I can't cope with other people. I can't cope with my neighbours. They're so noisy. I can't cope with the weather. I can't cope with the rain or the heat. She couldn't cope with anything. And I said, you know, this is your blueprint because you say this every day, you've made it real. And I'm going to give you a new print, new blueprint. You have to say every day, I have phenomenal coping skills. Keep saying it. Of course, you're going to object. Keep saying it because, well, last week you lost the plot in Tesco. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, I did, but I have phenomenal mm-hmm. coping skills. She was actually going to group therapy mm-hmm. and She said that every day, every week in group therapy, they had to say something. And a lot of them would say, well, today I saw a butterfly. It made me happy. Or today I saw some roses in bloom. I said, no, no, forget about all of that. (laughs) You are going to say, I have extraordinary coping skills. And the next week I have enviable coping skills. Mm -hmm. And what happened is that one of the nurses said, you know, some of the other patients would like to say that too. She said, I don't own the word. So they all began to say it and the hospital put big posters up around the ward and they had the fastest discharge rate because of this allowing them to say, I have amazing coping skills. And if you want to change your life, pick a phrase. I'm choosing to be healthy and choosing to feel great. I'm choosing to go to the gym and loving it. I'm choosing to feel great about myself. I'm choosing to to wake up every day and start with saying, hey, I love myself. Even if it feels silly, 
Because what happens is just the way if you have dry skin and you put lotion on it, your mind doesn't go, is that organic? Is that fair trade? It just allows lotion to nourish dry skin. Yeah. Well, words will nourish a dry soul. Yeah. Words can diminish you and they can elevate you. And there is nothing that will build your self-esteem like your own self-praise. I mean, you could buy shoes, you can go shopping, you can get pizza, you can get ice cream, you can ask someone else, do you like me? But there is nothing on the planet that will boost you like praising yourself. And so the best thing I can tell you to do, because I know it works, is think of the words you've always wanted to hear. You're my favorite kid. I am proud of you. Wow, you're amazing. How lucky am I? Or you're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And start to say it yourself. I'm gorgeous. I'm amazing. I'm lovable. And if you keep saying it, the mind not only doesn't know if it's true or false, it really doesn't care. And it will let it in. You see, you make your beliefs and then your beliefs turn right around and make you. So you might as well make your beliefs amazing. You know, I, I when I was working for Jane and had my own eating room, I noticed I'd look at them and go, oh, I couldn't wear that. Oh, I could never fit into that. Oh, I can't eat that. Mm-hmm. And I, thought, I noticed how many times I said that I started to go, I can wear anything. I can eat anything. I prefer to eat healthy, but I can wear whatever I want. And I'd look at someone and go, I could wear that, even though it actually wasn't true. I could, I could wear exactly that. That would look amazing on me. That wasn't true, <laughs> but I kept saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And it was very important for me to do that. And I could eat all of that. I may not, but I can eat whatever I want, which is better than going, I can't eat that. I can't wear that. I can't afford to eat that because I'll get fat. And I stopped all of that. And it was extraordinary. Now, I really can eat whatever I want. I I don't eat pizza and ice cream much, but I might. But I can eat whatever I want. And I pretty much can wear whatever I want because I reversed what I used to say. Yeah. Oh, my mother would say, oh, I'm going to get a headache now. The heating comes in the winter. I get my sinus headaches. That's going to make me ill. I remember taking my mother out for lunch one day and she would, I can't eat that. That will give me irritable bowel. I can't eat that. It gives me migraine. I was like, Mum, do you realize you're making it? You, you, you're so intolerant to food because you're an intolerant person. Oh, uh, how did your mum take that? Well, she understood. <laughs> she, my mum was a lovely person, but also a massive hypochondriac who learned being evacuated in the war that all her needs got met by being sick. And yeah. she never, ever gave that up. But she was a great teacher for me. Mm-hmm. She understood. But... I couldn't change her, I tried, but I, so I had to change myself. And having a mother that was on every kind of medication you can think of did me a great favor because I thought I'm never going to do that. I just, I'm not interested in pills and medicines. I remember my little girl one day, she, I was at a meeting and she called me and she goes, Mommy, I've got a headache. And she said, Mommy, I, I don't, I want cowpaw like all my friends. I don't want lavender and peppermint oil. I just want to have medicine like all my friends, which I thought was very funny. So my mom was a good teacher. She taught me something fascinating, which I now call foreplay. And it's something I teach all my clients in that when when you're a child on the planet and your needs aren't met, there's only one of four roles you're going to play. The first is to be sick. And being sick as a child especially is so good at meeting your needs Most children who learn to get their needs met through illness never give that up. 
My mm. mother was certainly one of them. The mm. second role is to be brilliant. And many people who are driven, the A student, they can't give that up because they thought, oh, you don't seem to love me, but now you're proud of me. Now you're saying, oh, my son, the grade A, my son, the athlete, my daughter, you know, she's um, just got into college. And so our needs are met now by being brilliant. And the third role, which is certainly the role I played, and most therapists, I was the carer. Oh, my needs aren't being met here. I want love and kindness and warmth. I'll give it. I'll become a therapist, a nurse. And I certainly did that. You give what you most want to get back. That's why nursing is a calling. The need to help other people is profound and quite wonderful, mm. except that many people who become carers give and don't receive mm. and get burnt out. And the fourth role is the rebel. It's like, okay, my brother's brilliant, my sister's sick, and my mum's the carer. There's no role left. And they, so they become the very difficult, rebellious child who's still a difficult, rebellious adult. Mm -hmm. And I say to all my clients, you know, you play the only part you've ever known. And then you make that part your own. You're still the carer, still the ill one, still the sick one. You think we change those roles um, according to which one we find that we get the most response from? Because they're, you know, when, when you mention those, and, uh, you know, as you're mentioning them, I was going through all the people in my mind and all these images sure. up of the different thing. Do you think we go through them until we find one which works for us? Um, Not really. You see, if you're born into a family, say you're the third kid and your brother is sick, he's asthmatic or got all these allergies mm -hmm. and, and your sister is very academic, you can't take those roles. They've gone. You'll very rarely find three sick kids in a family or mm. five academic kids. You might, but usually not. Usually when someone else has got the role, you take a different role. So you'll find often that an alcoholic will marry the carer. They, they don't usually marry. A bulimic wouldn't marry a bulimic. They, they hide that, but they'll marry someone who cares, the carer. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I remember years ago, one of my clients said to me, you know, my, my wife, my, my mother and my wife, they're both the sick one. And this is amazing. And we've take, we thought we'd take them on holiday together and it'd be wonderful. They could talk about their illnesses. It was a disaster. My mum would say, I've got migraine. Right. I was, well, I've got vascular migraine. Right. I have a chronic irritable bowel. Because you, it's your role now. And you don't want someone else to have that role. Mm -hmm. And so most children take the role that's left. If there's a lot of children in the family, you may find that they take on... A couple, they might be the carer and the sick one. Occasionally as you grow up, you may switch roles, but sometimes you can look at families like the Kennedys, for instance, and you can see because there's so many children and so much of that was dysfunctional, you can see, you know, a couple of those children were terrible drug addicts. Some of them died. And when you look at dynasties, I'm, I don't know if you've ever watched Succession about Rupert Murdoch, you can see that playing out, who took which role, why yeah. they took it. When you watch The Godfather, there it is there. I mean, that's not, a, that's not real, it's a story. But when you look at great stories, you'll see that part, yeah. who is the sick one, who is the brilliant one, yeah. who is the caring one. And it's always there because, and I learned that again from working with some of my clients who were extraordinary actors born into an acting dynasty and I could see immediately how they took that role. You can even 
see it in our own royal family if you look carefully enough oh. without naming names who's the sick one who's the difficult one who's yeah. the brilliant one and in the our families, I think we'd be able yeah. to, to see those roles. And it's interesting to, to think of that and compare and contrast it with what we were talking about before, about how you change the narrative and what you were saying before about um, just transforming the things that we say about ourselves. It reminds me of something that Trump very recently said, um, saying that I'm I'm in the I'm I'm a perfect human. I'm I'm in the best health and all of this sort of stuff. And if we could all firmly believe, it's clear that he very much believes. He's very firm in his convictions. That imagine what we could all do if we all believed in ourselves that much. We could all potentially be billionaires yeah. of the free world you know it's very much you can see how much conviction can how far it can get you in life and it's of course there's very much to say between what you're saying and the law of attraction which many people use to um transform their reality in the way that they're they're participating in their lives really yeah i think it's important to have conviction i mean sometimes of course you have people who are trying to convince you because they haven't actually convinced themselves at all. So it's not about convincing other people, which is what Trump tries to do. It is only about convincing you. Your job is not to make anyone else believe you're amazing. That's not important. Your job is to know that you're amazing. Yeah. To an extent that it doesn't make you arrogant and it doesn't make you needy, it makes you honor yourself because at one end of the scale, we have immense arrogance. I'm so great, I'm gonna keep telling you, and if I can convince you, I pulled it off because actually I don't believe it at all. And the <laughs> other end of the scale is that, oh, I'm no, I'm no good at all. I'm, I'm, I'm insecure and nervous and self-deprecating. But in the middle is what's called honoring yourself. Mm, mm. Telling yourself you're worth it, taking owning that job of feeling good about yourself, you know. Those other extremes that you just talked about, they're sort of distortions of the ego, whereas if we can land land in the middle and, and yeah, land in the middle and just don't ask anyone else to make you feel good. Mm. Decide that you are good. You're good enough just the way you are. You were born knowing that, and the fact that you were born knowing it is good indeed because it means that all you're doing is reactivating something that you were born with. It's not even new. No baby says, hey, I, I'm not wearing clothes from Gucci. I'm wearing clothes from a jumble sale, so I don't matter. They wouldn't even know. Hmm. They wouldn't even care. You know, when I was a single mother, I remember buying all my daughter's stuff from car boot sales and secondhand shops, and they gave her infinite pleasure. She didn't care that her Barbies weren't brand new. Mm -hmm. and, and often you'll find the children that their oldest beaten up Teddy is their favorite one. <laughs> so it's not about something new and shiny and glossy. Yeah. It's just about knowing you're enough. Don't compare yourself. And whatever words you need to hear, say them to yourself, be your own cheerleader. And it, honestly, it will change your life. Marissa, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to know, and of course I would love to know, what is, what is your personal practice? What is your, uh, your daily practice that you oh. do? Do you have one? I certainly do. So when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is go, I love my life. I wake up and go, I love my sheets. I love my little cats that are curled up in the crook of my knee. I love my <laughs> husband who's making me a cup of tea. And when I get in the shower, I go, I love the smell of the shower gel. I, I believe that if the first thing you can do is be grateful for anything, mm. then what happens is 
because gratitude is the highest frequency to resonate at. And if you do that first, oh, it's raining. How lovely. That means I don't have to water the garden. It means actually I can stay in and get stuff done. Whatever the weather is like, you know, you have to not think, oh, oh. I mean, my mother, I love her, but her first thought when she woke up was, oh, oh, look at the weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too wet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would go, hey, mom. I went, oh. I mean, she didn't mean it, but that that was what I was brought up with. And I was determined to do the opposite, uh, which is like, wow. And I remember I was in London a few weeks ago and I woke up and my neighbor's cat coming through the window and was also sleeping in the crook of my knee. And I, I had these lovely sheets. I did. I thought, wow, I'm so happy. I love these sheets. It's a gorgeous day. I've got this little cat purring at my feet. And I'm... It just made me so happy when you can find the, the simple things. So I look forward to my first cup of tea. Oh, I'm going to have a yummy cup of tea with coconut milk. Then I have a very weak coffee with almond milk. And each one I, I save, I go, this is so yummy. And it, it really works for me to constantly focus on what I'm grateful for. I mean, occasionally my partner, my husband, my child, our combined children will will um, do things, and and I always have to remind myself of my life without them, mm-hmm. which makes me pull back into. I'm so lucky to have them. So, which is quite a stoic technique, where where you imagine without where where you imagine life without all those beautiful yeah. things increases your gratitude and your expression of that of gratitude for those yeah. people, circumstances, or situations. Um, in one's yeah, life. I mean, we forget that we live in a free country in a free world, and most of us are immensely lucky. And it's very easy to go, you know, this COVID is killing me. I'm trapped. I'm locked in the house. I'm in quarantine. And you know, you're really not in quarantine. Yeah, one yeah. is trapped. The man who discovered the theory of relativity learned that when he was literally isolated during the plague. Yeah. And Nelson Mandela, I mean, he was in prison in isolation for 27 years. We're asked to take some time with the TV and food deliveries. And it's not easy, but it's also hard. And how you feel about it is how you describe it. I mean, that must be so, because half the people in COVID are going, I'm actually loving it. And the other half are going, oh, it's a nightmare, it's hell. I mean, of course, if you've got illness in your family, it must be just horrible. Mm-hmm. But even with COVID, the way you feel about it is down to the way you describe the words you use and the pictures you use. Because the way you feel about anything is down to two things the pictures you make in your head and the words. And you can even break that down to just the words because the words make the pictures. So if the way you feel about anything is down to the words you use, then st- wake up in the morning and go, What a great day. I'm alive. I've got food in my freezer. I've got love in my life. Wow, I'm so lucky because your problem is someone else's fantasy dream come true. You moan about the rain. Somebody in Africa would love the rain. Yeah. You moan about the heat. Somebody would, you moan about your kid who's draped mud all over your white carpet. Someone else would say, that's my fantasy dream. If I had a husband left his underpants on the floor every day, I'd be ecstatically happy. <laughs> If I had a kid that had peanut butter all over the door handle, that would be my fantasy dream come true. And then you have to ask them, what would you have given 20 years ago for this problem? You know, I have to, you know, my husband and I were 
somebody lent us a white Porsche. We were going to San Diego and I was giving a talk and he was going, oh my God, this traffic is awful. I said, look, here we are in a rented Porsche going to San Diego, being paid to speak at this place, put up in an amazing hotel. Mm. We, we can't complain about it. Mm. And occasionally we have little days we say, okay, we're not going to say anything negative all day for at least an hour. Because it's so easy to get into that, oh God, this is hell, this is a nightmare, this is a disaster. And it's really not. Being in the line in Sainsbury's is not hell. If you've got money to buy food and you've ever been to Africa, you'll realize that's not hell, that's a fantasy. Mm -hmm. You know, being on, a, on the 405, driving somewhere, it's not hell. If you've got a car and money to put gas in your car, that's not hell. And maybe you've got the time to yourself you always want to, which doesn't mean I never think, oh my God, this traffic's frustrating or this person's frustrating, but I'm very aware of not to call it a nightmare or yeah. hell. Yeah. It's hotter than hell here. This is a disaster. This is killing me. Because if you use those words, that's how you feel. Well, Marissa, I mean, all the way through our conversation, you have shared so many piles of wisdom, so many beautiful techniques along the way. But I would love to ask if you wouldn't mind that towards the end of our podcast, we do ask all of our experts to share either a mantra or a technique that everyone could take away and practice for the rest of the day or week or month or potentially even their life. If there was one thing um, you'd be able to uh, share with me and our listeners what would that be well that would if I had a mantra it would certainly be I'm enough I am enough I am enough the strength is in its simplicity but also it's absolute honesty if you go hey I'm a rock star I'm a goddess I'm like of course you're not but if you say I'm enough your mind won't object with that because it is the truth we're all enough and so my mantra is I'm enough I actually have a website called I'm enough I have a twitter feed called I'm enough it, it's it's I would live my life by knowing I'm enough because my enoughness gives me immense peace. And of course, when you're enough, you're not arrogant because you recognize that everyone else is enough too. I'm not better than anyone, but no one is better than me. When I recognize my enoughness, I recognize your enoughness. When I know I'm enough, or to my audience, when you know you're enough, the, the beauty is you allow other people to know that you're enough too. You don't start trying to... You see, love is not to be bought or run after or worked for or slaved over. It's for you to say, I'm lovable just the way I am, and so are you. And you can have immense peace in your life when you say, I'm enough. I don't need to abuse my body with food or drugs because I'm enough. I don't need to date someone who isn't even good enough for me in case I don't find anyone better. I don't need to take drugs to cope with reality because my reality is I'm enough. Mm. And so it, 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 it's, it's my favorite mantra of all time. It's the title of one of my books. It's all, I have it all over my house written. I love it. If only we could all do that. And if you have children, if you get them all to go, I'm enough. It even stops bullying. I know that because so many schools who've done our program say, wow, yeah. this is working for the bullies, even more than the children that were bullied. Wow. Marissa, it's just such powerful stuff. And as you were speaking, I was just thinking of just how incredible this world would be if, if everyone was really able to know it 
and feel it and uh, spread that message. So I really hope that this and, is... And if you, if you are an advanced yo, you think I don't even need that, it doesn't matter. You have children and godchildren and nieces and nephews and friends and people that you work with or for who do need it. So I really believe we should all join the I'm Enough movement. And if you go to I'mEnough.com, we'll give a ton of stuff. Or if you go to MarissaPeer.com, we give away... Lots of audios on love blogs and wealth blogs and yes, relationships. So blogs. generous, yes. And I've, I, you know, in the, re- the research that, of course, I've followed your work for many years anyway, but then in the research I was doing, I was just looking at the abundance of how much you're giving and how much you're sharing just to make things um, and these techniques and these tools as accessible as possible for everyone. So we'll certainly um, put a link to all your wonderful work. Uh, with this podcast as well so that everyone will be able to access even more resources and and a lot of the work that you share as well if you go to rtt.com we do again give away all kinds of stuff where you can learn how to train with us and do what we do or you can find someone that does what we do yeah and you are going to be hosting an online workshop with us uh this year later this month as part of our online festival what can we look forward to and i mean (laughs) a thousand things of course as as we can experience from this podcast but what can we expect in that workshop with you that you'll be hosting for us well to leave knowing that you're enough to leave knowing that whatever your issue is you can overcome it whether you lack confidence or self-esteem or have fears or phobias or simply want to really believe you are enough we will wire that and fire that into you and you'll leave feeling different to when you came incredible i know that that is going to be rammed full of people experiencing these techniques I cannot wait to be there and experience that with you and all of the people together as well I'm certain it's going to be powerful and transformative Marissa even though I feel like I could talk to you all day I know it's early morning where you are and and evening where I am I would just love to thank you for taking the time out to speak with me today and just sharing so much so openly and so generously thank you marissa thank you so much you're welcome thank you very much see you soon for more information about the wellbeing festival visit mindbodyspirit.co.uk today's episode was sponsored by larabar i've been your host pavani vias and this episode was produced by josh roberts and our sound engineer erin milligan thanks for listening and we'll be back very soon